0: Enough of the excuses. Let's get into the sermon. We, um, we're on week six now. We've been going through the life of Abraham. And we've been talking about Abraham is a picture of faith. Now, Abraham really lived. Everything we read about really happened. But God's in charge of editing his Bible. And the things that made it into the Bible were put in there for a reason. And the reason is that his life that he really lived is symbolic of our faith life that we live. So there's a lot of lessons for us in the life of Abraham. And so we kind of been walking through it with that idea because we're trying to walk by faith uh, and not by you know by our own our own might. And Abraham's like the the perfect picture of that. And it occurred to me last week uh, I had a great opportunity to do something that I hardly ever do. Good preachers, not me, uh, usually have three point sermons. And uh, my dad was very good at three point sermons. Uh, and, you know, you could wake him up at 3 in the morning. Hey, I need a three-point sermon. On bu- and he'd just wake up and write down three points, probably on the back of an envelope, and go. You know, he was real good at it. Uh, I usually have one point if I'm lucky. You know, those of you who have been here for a while, I kind of meander through a point. Uh, last week, I had this great opportunity to do a three-point sermon. I missed it. So I'm going to go back and pick up the three points from last week's sermon. just going to hit on the points. And as a, as that as a kind of way of introducing where we are in the story. So Abraham has followed the Lord into the promised land. We've had some things, hiccups with his faith, but he's back. And then last week, something really incredible happened because there was a battle, a huge battle. It took place between nine kings. There were four kings who were kind of the powerhouse of the region, and there's five kings who were rebelling against them, and the four kings just mopped them up. They first had one battle that kind of stopped it, and then when the five kings rose up again, they smacked them down again, and they took all their possessions and left. Uh, Unfortunately for those four kings, one of the possessions they took was a person. And the person was Abraham's nephew. Now, Abraham had nothing to do with the battle at all. It was, it was outside of, of his world. He didn't care about it until he got word that his nephew, Lot, had been taken. And Abraham gathers up a fighting force from his servants. He has 387 the Bible tells us servants who've been trained in battle. He must have a huge servant load when you take 387 of them and give them battle training. And he goes and he gets two, two neighbors of his who were allies. We don't know how many people they provided, but not many. Probably about 500 people chased after these four kings. And they took them on in the middle of the night and they, they destroyed them. They just sent them flying and they recovered everything they had stolen. And they came back. It was just an incredible victory. Um, you know kind of the Bible throws it in there and uh, we see that so then after it's all done something really important happens and here's where the three points come up Uh, he's coming back from this big defeat of his victory their defeat and he's coming up and the king of Sodom who was one of the kings who was defeated before and lost things came to meet him because he's going to ask for his stuff back but there's this other king comes a very mysterious character in the Bible Melchizedek and this is the first time we see him introduced in the Bible. He's discussed a couple more times. Uh, he's discussed in the New Testament as well. But the Bible describes him as the high priest of God. And he's also the king of Salem, which would be a Hebrew for peace. He's the king of peace, high priest of God. So he's symbolic of a lot of things. We don't really know exactly who he is. He seems to have been around for a while. So Melchizedek comes back. Now, I want to show you what happens here. He comes out, and he brings out bread and wine. Now, now, I want to put this in context for you. This is way before Jesus Christ Gives us communion. I mean, Jesus Christ won't come along for about 3,000 years. This is about 1,000 years before Passover will first be celebrated. So long before we have any kind of a reference point for Passover or communion, here's Melchizedek coming with specifically bread and wine. That's because God's eternal. He didn't need Moses to, to, to start this tradition. This is God. And God's high priest is coming basically to offer communion before there was such a thing. This is the first occurrence of it. We see his high priest come because God's God. And he's going to offer him communion. But here's the amazing thing. He isn't bringing any animals to offer a sacrifice for sins. Now, in the law, which, which you know, comes a thousand years from now, you can't go to communion if you're dirty or if you have blood on your hands. You're going to have to be cleansed first. And that's, a, that's something that's going to be held true all the way up in, you know, in, into the you know, early days of the church. That if, if this is it, you're going to have to be cleansed first. And so you would think that after he came back from a battle, the first thing he would have to do, the high priest would say, well, you're going to have to get cleaned before you can come to have communion. But that's not the case. In fact, he just comes to bless Abram and to share a meal communion with him. So here's the thing that's incredible about what we just talked about is Abraham went off and he did God's work. We know this because this is part of the blessing. Melchizedek will say that God you know, sent him. In fact, Melchizedek blesses him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay? So he's going to come, he's going to tell him that, and, and that's all it is, it's a blessing. You were doing God's work even in the battle which means Abraham's work did not make him unclean. Now making a point of that because this is actually a distinction between uh, the Protestant belief and the Roman Catholic belief. Because in a Roman Catholic church, they basically teach that if you're not working, the only holy work, the only clean work is the church's work. And if you're not involved in that, then whatever you're involved in is unrighteous. And you redeem it by giving money to the church and doing penance. Some of you are nodding because you're, Reformed or or, or former Catholics and some of you are Protestants all your life go. What are you talking about? Trust me? This is a thing according to the Roman Catholic Church. They dispense grace They're the ones in charge of dispensing God's grace and you need to get right before you can you can have his grace And so you're going to have to give to the church and you're also going to have to do penance You know the Hail Marys and all those things. I I, that's about as far as I know I've never been in a Catholic confessional, but uh, you know that that's how it goes uh, and th- they basically taught that, uh, that your work, basically whatever it is, if it's not working in the church, it's unclean. And so the church has to clean you so you can have uh, communion. And the communion is where your fr- sins are forgiven so that you'll go to heaven. That's the, the, the pattern. Okay? The Protestant uh, break off the reform, you know, we have uh, many things that Protestants are, are off, uh, different with Catholics. But this is one of them. Because the Protestant belief is your work doesn't have to be unholy or make you unclean as long as you bring God with you into your work. So there's no separation there. We see this, uh, the reference for that is in Colossians, Colossians 3, Paul says this, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the reward of your inheritance. He says, you don't work for that idiot boss, you work for Jesus Christ. So whenever you're working, forget about the boss. Your boss is Jesus Christ. So you're supposed to be working for the Lord. You're bringing God with you into into your workplace, and you will work for God always because your work will shine on that. And he he actually goes on and says, if you don't, believe me, you're not going to get any breaks because you're a Christian. He says, you know, there'll be no partiality given to you. And so this is the first point that I missed. I should have brought out. For someone living by faith, there is no separation between their faith and what they do for a living. So if we want to live by faith, we have to remember this. And I say this because you know, I don't know how women interact, you know, but I know how guys interact. And let me tell you how we interact. If we meet a new guy and we're talking at a party or something like that, uh, it will, five minutes will not go by before you ask, so what do you do for a living? Right? And all the guys are nodding. That's, we do this all the time. Because we get our identity, whether we like it or not, by what we do. Now that either you're proud of that, oh, let me tell you what I do, or, well, I'm just doing this, but I'm hoping to move on to this, you know? So, so it depends, but you, you have your identity associated with your work. Here's something else guys do. We compartmentalize. So we have these little tiny compartments in our life, and then we put things in those compartments, and what we have a tendency to do, to the detriment of our faith, is we try to put God into a compartment. There's my God compartment. That's not necessarily my work compartment, right? Those two don't mix. And so I'm a good Christian, but that's when I have opened up that door and I'm there. And what God's saying is, no, 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 I'm in. You know, part of the deal here is I'm all in. And I'm all in for you, you're all in for me. There's no compartments that are going to separate us. So we need to bring God with us. Now, Paul's pretty eloquent, but I actually think the best way I've ever heard this described was Martin Luther King Jr. He put it this way. He said, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets as Michelangelo painted, Beethoven composed, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. You're working for Jesus Christ, he's saying. He, whatever you're doing, you do it for the Lord. And so this is the first thing we have to recognize is that if we're going to live lives of faith, God's with us when we're working. And, he, and he's a boss worth working for. Okay, so then, of course, Mount Kessick's going to break, and bless him. But then the next thing that happens is he gives him a tenth of everything. As I said, this predates the law. This is before this idea of tithing is put into law. This predates the New Testament. The way, way, way back here, tithing was already established. And the reason for it is someone who lives by faith, this is point number two, there can be nothing they have that did not come from the Lord. Because if you're truly living by faith, you don't want anything that didn't come from God. So if it didn't come from God, get rid of it. It can't be any good. But anything I do have came from God. And he's saying, look, if God gave me something, I'm going to give back 10% to show that I recognize this all came from God. 100% of it's God. I'm simply giving 10% back and keeping 90%. That's, That's a mentality of somebody who's living by faith. And then the king of Sodom comes up and offers Abraham a deal to get his stuff back. Uh, I can work a deal with it, which is stupid because, you know, the, the king of Sodom was hiding in his room while well, Abraham went off and did all the work. But he comes up to try to get the stuff because this is, you know, this is how the world is. It's greedy. Now now I see you've done that. Gimme, gimme, gimme. And Abraham turns to him and says this. He says, look, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that's yours that you will never, ever, ever say I have made Abram rich. I like the fact. That Abram's actually very specific when he starts talking about thongs and says of a sandal, because for the king of Sodom, you don't know what kind of a thong he's going to be giving you. Anyway, but he says, I'm going to make sure that no one will ever, ever, ever say that you made me rich. And here's the third point from last week that I missed someone living by faith is more concerned with their testimony than their treasure. He says, Look, I, I'm here for one purpose, and that's to bring glory to God. Anything that's going to in any way dim that, I don't want. I'm worried about my testimony. I want to be able to stand up before everybody. Everybody knows. You know who made me rich? God made me rich. And by the way, God's making him very rich. And he promised him he would. Okay, so that's the points from last week. What happens next? So now Abraham goes from there and he returns home. And he had to travel to have this battle. And now he's going to go home. And it isn't until he goes home that God comes to him. Now he sent Melchizedek to speak for him. But he doesn't speak personally to him until he gets back home. I find that interesting. In the quiet spaces, oftentimes, is where God speaks to you. And so in a quiet time, when he gets back, he, uh, God comes to him, and he comes to him in a vision. It's after all these things, the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, and he says this, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you, and your reward shall be very great. Okay, so this is weird to me, because Abraham has just won this huge victory. Now, if we were making a movie, if Hollywood in charge of making a movie... This is the scene where Abraham goes back to his tent, kicks off his sandals, gets, pours himself a, a glass of, of scotch and gets a cigar out, puts his feet up and smokes a cigar and, and sips his, his scotch because he just beat up four kings that no one could beat. Like, this is a total victory. And, and this is where he's like, yeah, yeah, that was all right, you know? But God comes to him in this moment and says, first thing he says, don't be afraid. I'm like, what's he afraid of? Why would God? Listen, every time God comes in the Bible and says these words, look them up. New Testament, Old Testament, every time he comes and says, do not be afraid. you know why he says that? Because the person's afraid. Every time. God's not wasting words. He didn't come to Abraham and said, don't be afraid. And Abraham said, what of? No, Abraham was afraid. He was afraid. And he, God comes and the very first thing he says, no, Abraham, I, I don't want you to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. And what in the world is he afraid of? Well, what are any of us afraid of? Look, there's only two things really if you cut it all down to pieces there's only two things that we're ever afraid of in life the first thing is we're afraid something bad might happen to us that's the fear that we have now we might not express it that way you know like my wife will say she's afraid of spiders Right? But the reason she's afraid of spiders is she actually believes that spiders can jump 15 feet and they have fangs. And so something bad, you know, everybody's nodding, yeah, you betcha, Yeah, uh, the spiders, they're dangerous. She doesn't even trust daddy Longlegs. she's sure they're hiding fangs somewhere. Me, personally, I'm afraid of my wife. But the point is <laughs> that we're afraid something bad might happen to us, that's what we're really afraid of. We're afraid of something bad might happen to us, right? The second thing that we're afraid of is the other side of that. We're afraid something we really, really want is not going to happen to us. Our heart's desire will never be ours. And we're fearful of that. So I wanted to show you that when God comes to him, he actually addresses both these concerns, which tells me Abraham was afraid of both of them. He says, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. You don't have to be afraid of anything getting through you, not even spiders. I got them all. I I will block everything from you, right? And then he also says, and I'm going to reward you. And your reward's going to be great. I'm going to bless you with amazing, something amazing and, and really great. So the question is: didn't God say this already? Yeah, He did. If you go back earlier and go back in the, you know, we're, we're in week six. He said it like twice now already. He's repeating himself. Um, and, and God does repeat himself sometimes. And I, I need to tell you, beware when God repeats himself, because he's usually doing it for a reason. Pay attention when you feel like God has repeated himself to you, because there's usually a reason for that. You know, some of you who know, um, Victoria's had quite a summer. You know, remember when you went to school and you had to write an essay on what I did, how I spent my summer vacation, right? Well, if Victoria wrote that essay, it'd be a sad tale, because she got some kind of extreme case of poison ivy, and then she had some kind of a toxic shock her body went into, and she's been hypersensitive things ever since, and she's still working her way out of it now. She's still not Better. She looks better, but she's actually um, heavily sedated. No, but uh, she, she's, she has a lot of antihistamines in her, though, to help fight off some of the stuff. And there's been a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of uh, healing that's been going on. There's still a lot more that has to happen. Here's the thing about that, and some of you know this story. Um, I was in the hospital with a heart thing uh, way back, what was it, April, I think. And um, it wasn't anything serious, but, but Victoria was there with me. We were both in UPMC East, and she had a premonition that we were going to be back in that hospital reversed where she was going to be the patient and I was going to be one sitting there chasing nurses down finding out what was going on. Um, And that actually happened a month later in May. While she was in the hospital, while we're waiting for them to come back with the test results and things, she had felt God, she's praying, felt God was saying, you're going to go through this and you'll be fine, but you're going to go through it and I'll be with you. And she told me that, you know, and I thought, well, okay, Um, that very well might be from God. That's not necessarily good news because it means you have to go through it. It's better to avoid it. But if God's going to be with you, you're going to be healed. At least we can rejoice in that. Uh, And then not long after that, uh, when it seemed to be getting worse, she got a phone call for somebody in the church that she hadn't spoken to in quite a while. And that person said, I just have to tell you, I feel God's telling me something to tell you. And that's that you're going to be all right, but you're going to go through this and he's going to be with you. And Victoria said, wow, that's exactly what God told me. So that's what we call confirmation. Only about a week or so later, she was here for a Saturday night service, and somebody who's a real introvert, like hardly ever speaks, uh, she came to me and says, would it be okay if I told Victoria something? I don't know what's going on, but my heart's like pounding in my chest. I feel like God has a message for her. I says, yeah, sure, go ahead, you know. And she says to Victoria, I don't know, i do this. never done this before in my life, but I feel like God wants me to tell you, you're going to get through this. He's going to be with you, but you're going to go through it. That's the third time. And that wouldn't be the end of it. There'd be more of them, right? That should have been a tip-off to us. This is going to take a lot longer than we thought. That should have been a tip-off. Because God does that. He reassures you ahead of time to remind you what he's already promised you. And he's doing it because he knows it's going to be so long, you're going to lose faith. He's going to keep coming back and, and, and to, to reassure you. Because sometimes we have to go through something, and we're going to go through it. And he's basically saying, you thought when I said you could go through this, you thought it would be a week. No, it'll be longer than that. And we saw that happen with this church, too. You know, we've been praying for this building and praying for this building and praying for this building. And we're getting ready to move into our next phase. We keep thinking, we keep thinking. And then a couple weeks ago, some of you were here. God sends this new believer we never met before. He never been here before. (coughs) Um, God sent him here with a message. Uh, And uh, he says, you know, I'm just kind of all new to this thing. I've just been a Christian for eight months. I don't know what I'm doing exactly. But I think God has a message for this church. And he gave us a message which basically reaffirmed everything that we had already been told about the church and the church's future. And I thought, oh, hallelujah. And then when he left, the next day I was thinking about it, uh-oh. God just repeated himself. <laughs> that means this is going to take longer than we expected. Right? God will do that. He will, re- he will encourage you and re-encourage you and re-encourage you. So when you catch God repeating himself, he's not wasting words. He's trying to let you know, what I said is true, but it's going to take you longer than you thought. Hang in there. Hang in there. I, I don't know what else to tell you, uh, but uh, hang in there. So God tells him you're going to be uh, safe and you're going, to be, uh, you're going to be rewarded. And Abraham doesn't seem to worry at all about being safe. Uh, he, he just fought a battle that he couldn't win and he won handily. So he knows God's there. But look what he says next. <clears throat> Lord God, sovereign Lord is actually the actual translation of that. Oh, sovereign Lord, uh, what will you give me seeing that I go childless? In fact, the heir of my house is now Eleazar of Damascus. So since he has no children, he has a will. And in the will, he is named Eleazar of Damascus. No idea who this guy is. He's like disappeared from history. But he must have been somewhat close to the family. And so he says, if I should die, all my stuff goes to him. Can't leave it for his, to his wife because in those days, women couldn't inherit anything. So, so he's picked Eleazar of Damascus, which is interesting since Lot lives with them and he's a relative, but he's not giving it to him. Maybe he knows something about Lot. And then Abraham says, you have given me no offspring, in case you didn't understand what I just meant by that. I have no children. So I'm 90-some years old at this point, God, and you can bless me all you want, but I'm not going to be around a whole lot longer, and then what? I can't even give it to my child, because I'm still childless. Because he doesn't care about money. He's already rich in things. There's one thing that he's wanted for a very long time. He wants a son. He wants a child. Now, the Bible told us that 387... Servants of his were trained in warfare. Those servants live with him, you know, in his his huge estate. I want you to picture what it's like for Abraham watching children be born all around him, but not him. He has his promise from God, and he has God's hand on his life. He's got this great blessing. He's got all this wealth, but the one thing he's wanted since way back when he was seventy-five and God first came to him twenty some years ago, he wants a son. And God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, great God, but I'm 90-something now. I've been patient. I've got nothing. I've got no child. I've watched everybody around me have children. Lot has children. The unrighteous Lot has children. I've got nothing. And so he says, exactly how are you going to bless me when the one thing I really need, I still don't have? And behold, the word of the Lord said, this one, talking about Elazar, shall not be your heir. Believe me, that's not going to happen. You are not going to die and leave your stuff to Elazar. That's not going to happen. The heir is going to be one who comes from your own body. That's, that's, that's who's going to get, your, going to get your, your wealth when it's all done. And he brings them outside and he says, now look up to the heavens, count the stars, try it. See if you're able. Because as many stars as you see, that's how your descendants will be. And by the way, this does not just include all Jews. There's been many of them in the, in the 3,000 years that will follow. It also includes you because he is your spiritual father. You know, it was because of the faith of Abraham and through the line of Abraham that Jesus will come. So we all count as well. You couldn't possibly number all the descendants of Abraham. God's not lying here. He's telling the absolute truth. And Abraham believed in the Lord and God accounted that to him as righteousness. What he's saying is just believing in me gets you right with me. It's like your sin's forgiven. You, you're right with me because you believe me. This is a really big verse for Paul. Paul quotes that one all the time. And then he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldeans to give this land to you so you will inherit it. And then he says, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? Now, we're moved off the child. He believed in the child. But he's looking around this land, and he knows he's surrounded by enemies. He says, how do I know that I'll be able to inherit it? You know, it's one thing to take it, but possessing, it's a whole different story. So how do I know that I will inherit it? And I need a sign, in other words. I need some sign. And then God says something really, really weird, and let me read it to you, then I'll explain it. Uh, and so he says, bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, that's weird to us. It's like Noah's Ark all over again, but there's actually a very specific reason he's asking for all these things. You'll notice Abraham doesn't ask him why, because he knows exactly what God's doing. Okay, so three-year-old heifer, three-year-old female goat, and three-year-old ram. These are, these are animals in their prime. And they're going to be part of something called a covenant. And covenant is something that God uses, but it was also being used in the area. It wasn't the only uh, Jews. We're not the only ones who would use this. And so he goes and he gets these things. And he brings them all and cuts them in two right down the middle and places them on opposite sides of the other. So he separates them and he, he splits them apart. Now, What is going on here? Uh, something known as cutting a covenant. We call it making a covenant. But the actual term, if you look up the Hebrew, is to cut a covenant. And this is how it's done. They take it and they cut these things and they separate them and they put the space between them. And they gather all the people around. And the two kings who are making a deal or cutting, cutting a deal or cutting a covenant will then walk through the carcasses together. And they will proclaim that they are cutting a covenant together. And what that means is they're saying bear witness, if any of us don't keep, if either of us don't keep up our side of the bargain, we will be like these dead animals. And it was very serious. It's like, it's like a blood, lo- blood oath to another level. There's a covenant. And that's what God's actually saying. He said, I need you to do that. So he goes, and he doesn't even have to be told what to do with them. He knows exactly what he's doing. He cuts them all up. And then when the sun went down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. He falls, he falls asleep. So he cuts us, He's waiting for God to say, what happens next? And God says, Nothing until this deep sleep falls upon him. And then God gives him a prophecy. He said, I need you to know what's going to happen. So he actually tells him about the whole bit with slavery in Egypt and all that was told to him ahead of time. He said, but you're not going to see any of it. So when I say I'm going to give you this land, in other words, I will give it to you. I will give it to your descendants. But you won't be around when that happens. And then God performs the covenant ceremony. And it comes to pass... When the sun went down and it was dark, the behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between the pieces. This is what the kings would do. If night was falling and people were watching, they'd have a smoker and a torch. And they'd walk through it and they did that so people could see them from all around. And they'd walk through this so everybody could witness it. Even if you weren't up close, you could see that. That's why they would oftentimes wait till night to do it. God does it, but I want you to see he does it alone. Abraham doesn't walk it with him. God says, I'm making a covenant. And you know who it depends upon? Me. That's who. Here's how you can know that this is true. Because I said it. I'm the only one who can make it happen. And I'm the only one taking this promise. You don't have to do anything. This is on me. Good thing, too, because the next chapter, Abraham's going to go off and screw up. Like we all do. But God's covenant is not dependent upon us. God's covenant is dependent upon him. He was the only one who walked in the covenant. And we see this idea picked up in scriptures. one of the most famous Scriptures in the world, Psalms 23, right? He restores my soul, verse 3, and he leads me in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. So I'm going to do this for me, he says. I'm going to do it because I said so. That's why. And then Paul loves this story. He tells it in Romans 4. He says, in hope against hope, Abraham believed. He had no reason to believe God could do this. In, in, in he might become a father of many nations, according to that which has been spoken to him. Now, what, be, without becoming weak in his faith, when he contemplated his own body, because he's as good as dead, he's almost 100 years old, it's like, how are you going to exactly do this? Uh, and Sarah's womb, is, she's already through menopause, so that's done. So you could look at the problem and say, well, this can't happen. Instead, he looked at God and realized, watch this, fully assured that what God had promised, God was able to to perform he said I'm I looking at everything and I'm saying I can't possibly figure out how you're going to do this this is a mystery to me I look at it and say this is impossible nuts but here's what I believe the God who promised it is the God who can do it here's the one thing we have to remember what God had said to Abraham basically was I'm going to perform a great miracle for you uh, but if we don't need God to make it happen it's not a miracle See, if he would have had a baby later in life, it's unusual, but it's not impossible. What God had in mind was to do something impossible. I'm going to do something that you know it's from me. I'm going to do something so great that everybody knows it's from me. I'm going to do something. I'm going to wait until you're not capable of doing this, and Sarah's womb is completely dried up and done, menopause over. Then I'm going to do it, because I want everybody to know that I'm doing it. As I like to say, the infinite God is never out of time. God's miracles do not depend upon us. Thank God that his miracles don't depend on me. Thank God. Because I know who I am. I know how I mess up. But if God says I'm going to do a miracle, he just doesn't. He doesn't need me to be anything. And so um, I know there are a lot of books and YouTube videos and everything else that basically... Uh, the context of them is, hey, get this secret and you'll have all your prayers answered. You know, there's some people who seem to like to buy those books and read them. They're all junk. You're wasting your time. But I will give you the secret to seeing miracles in your life. And this is true. This is a true. I could back this up with scripture. The secret to seeing miracles in your life, if you're praying for them, here's the secret. Stay close to the one who does miracles. Now, this might mean that the miracle isn't happening for you, but you'll see it. You know, God will do his miracles. He has mercy upon whom he has mercy. But your job is to stay close. The reason that Abraham will see the miracles that God promised is because he stays close to God. Now, he has his times. We'll see them next chapter, in fact, when he falls away for a while and comes back. So we all, like, like we all do, we all struggle a little bit. But he sees the miracles because here's what he's focused on doing. I'm going to be a friend of God. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be the best friend to God I can be. Now, some people look at that and say, cool, all I'll do is be a friend of God and he'll do good things for me. Cool. I'll say, God, I'm, I've friended you on Facebook and I'm out. He's not a Facebook friend. This isn't what we're talking about. We're not talking about a Facebook friend here. We're talking about a real friend. We're talking about a friend who spends time with you. A, a, a friend who's loyal to you. A friend who stands up for you. Think about your friends. Think about your closest friend. How would you describe them? Are you that friend to God? Do you stay close to him? Do you, are you loyal Would you stand up before him and say something if somebody's attacking him behind his back, if you could do such a thing? See, being a friend of God is really what this is all about, just being a friend of God. He says, that's all I need you to be. Be here, be close, be my friend, and watch what I'm going to do for you because I'm not out of time yet. I've got this. I can do miracles. Uh, All you need to do is stay close. If we can do that, we'll see the miracles in our life. And if we just want to have him do stuff for us while we go do something else, That's not the deal. The covenant that God made with Abraham said, I will do this. All I need you to be is my friend. And Abraham did it, and he saw the miracle. Would you all please pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll be with us as we move forward in our lives and help us.